It's Tuesday, February 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we have Motley Fool analyst Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, welcome. How are we feeling? Feeling good. Feeling Thanks, wonderful. Matt. Hey, Jamie. Good. good. Well, we're going to talk some Shopify, we're going to talk some Under Armour, and we're going to talk some Ellie May. No, Andy, it's not the Beverly Hillbillies. Ellie <laughs> may not be an investment idea anymore, huh? Ah, that's true. That's true. Well, Going private, but don't don't give it away. Don't, don't give it away. Give it away. But let's begin with the subject of cold hard cash. A Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey found that professional investors took their highest cash positions in ten years during the month of January. Andy. A lot of cash on the sidelines. What does it mean for investors? Well, I, they don't know anything more than you know, Mac. I mean, like, no, wait a minute. They don't. Like, listen. <laughs> let's here's the not get, so let's here's not get ahead the deal. Here. We came off the worst uh, Q4 uh, in December uh, that we've seen in a long time. So they just they're nervous Nellies, right? So they're just thinking all the negative. They moved to cash, looking for better prices. They got it in January, so maybe they deployed some of that. But I'm not surprised by that. Uh, Tom Gardner and I have been tracking a metric that. Can compares cash in money market funds to overall stock capitalization and uh, looking at that at that ratio as well too and so when that ratio gets somewhere into a level of uh, above 10 11 12% i start to get really interested in putting some equity to work cuz historically it's been somewhere below like somewhere around 10 or 11% and so the lower it gets it says that more people are interested in investing so there's a little bit more euphoria in the markets the higher that metric goes, like we're seeing with these uh, professional money managers hoarding some cash, uh, people are waiting for some better prices. That's a lot of capital that could come into the markets. So, Jason, along those lines, there are two ways to look at this story. One way is, wow, what do the pros know that I don't, <laughs> that they're all in cash? But the other way is, hey, what a great time to be in stocks if there's all this cash on the sidelines waiting to come in the market. I mean, yeah, you can, if you look at the way 2018 closed out, I mean, it does make sense. There was a lot of selling. The market finished up uh, on the downside, obviously. That money goes somewhere. It's not like it was really rotating from sector to sector. I mean, the S&P, in general, had a bad year last year. Uh, and really, the last two months of the year were, were Really bad. I mean, all so, asset, all asset classes. Yeah, and so I mean down, that money so. goes somewhere, and a lot of times, I mean, you know, so it, it makes sense that cash balances are up now. I, I like the way you're thinking about it because to me, it does sound like there's a lot of cash on the sidelines, people waiting for some bargains to come around. It, it, it seems like we're obviously in a very volatile time, uh, politically speaking, and headlines drive a lot of what the markets are doing day to day. Fundamentally, still a lot of great businesses out there doing a lot of great things. Um, valuations really aren't all that out of hand when you look at it from that perspective. And, I mean, I have a pretty good chunk of cash myself. Like, I'm ready to put that to work as well. I think it's uh, it's a great time to be an investor to have your your watch list in order because when those opportunities come, you want to be able to pull the trigger. Well, some of that cash today going into Under Armour shares up on better than expected earnings. Now, Jason, international sales seem to be one of the highlights, but still some concerns about how Under Armour is doing in the U.S. Yeah, I mean the market's receiving the report. It looks like fairly well to me. Going through the call and the release, this is is ultimately a mixed bag. It seems like they're on the right track, but my biggest problem is they've yet to fully convince me that they've got North America turned around. Now, with that said, I mean it's on a the big call, market. it is a big market, and, and and you know if we want to compare it 
to one of their competitors in the space. I mean, Nike just reported not too long ago, and North American sales were up 9% for the quarter. Under Armour sales were down, down uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 6%, actually. So, clearly, Nike taking some share, Under Armour losing some share. The nice thing in the call, Plank did note that he feels like uh, th- that North America has stabilized. The guidance for 2019 is for relatively flat, possibly a percentage or two uh, of growth uh, there. So, that's encouraging. We know internationally they're doing very well. A lot of good things going up there. Gross margin uh, up for the quarter. Uh, projected to be up for 2019 as well. Inventory levels coming back down. So, they are doing a lot to get this business back in in lean operating order, like they promised they would do in 2018. Okay, so you mentioned Nike, though. What's the argument for investing in Under Armour over Nike? I don't own either of them, but if I were to buy one, I'd be very, very tempted just to buy Nike. It seems like a much safer bet. I would, I would say you're right. Nike would be a safer bet, and perhaps that's the argument for buying Under Armour. I mean, there's a risk reward scenario there where you potentially could see outsized returns with Under Armour if they're able to right this ship, get North America back in order. I mean, we've come down pretty hard on them. Kevin Plank's made some some. Pretty good blunders here over the past couple of years. And he's kind of bombastic. He's, has he toned that down at all? He has, and I think when you go through the call, you see that that David Bergman and Patrick Frisk are playing bigger roles on those calls, able to to sort of temper him a little bit and really talk more about the business itself. And for investors like us, that's what we really care about. I'm less about the bombastic speech and telling me how you're going to change the world, and more about. Show me the numbers. Show me the business. Tell me how you're going to execute. It sounds like they've got this thing in order. They've hired a chief culture officer, Trinavia Rocker, who spent 22 years, I think, at Harley Davidson. So a great tracker, track yeah, record there that. for her. So to me, that tells me Plank is serious about really building a long-term, sustainable company where people want to be. And if you can do that, I mean, Under Armour's brand is still extremely powerful in the space. And just one final point, you know, we talked a lot about connected fitness and had to probably eventually write this off. Connected fitness is not going away for Under Armour. It's thirty million dollars in revenue for the quarter. It was profitable for the full year, and it really is going back to the point of those acquisitions in the first place to figure out what their customers really want and make new products so they can sell more stuff to their to their customer base. So. There are reasons to be optimistic. I think again, we're seeing signs of of things stabilizing. I'd say cautiously optimistic, and that's about as far as I'm going to go with it. <laughs> okay, let's talk Shopify. Shares down after the company reported fourth quarter earnings. Now, Shopify is a behind the scenes e commerce platform that allows businesses of all sizes to set shop up online. So, Andy, a lot of us don't know that name, Shopify, but if we're online, there's a good chance we're interacting with a business that uses Shopify, and the stock has been a long term market beater. What do you think of the latest numbers? Oh, it's been great. It was a fantastic quarter. It's just that uh, they've just they're going against these old these their own great growth expectations. I mean, this that saw a growth in sales of fifty four percent. Their subscription solutions, so their monthly subscription solution sales, were up forty two percent. Their merchant solutions, these are two businesses they that Shopify uh, thrives in. Merchant solutions, which includes like shipping, Shopify payments, their Shopify capital business, that saw sixty three percent growth. So over. Overall, the continued growth story at Shopify has been just fabulous, and it continues. However, Mac, 
compared to last quarter, the growth rates were a little bit slower. And so, they're losing money, right? So you say the word fantastic, but then I see the headline well, about do. this fourth quarter loss, and I'm like, what gives? Well, they are losing money, like like a whole lot of like uh, SaaS business, um, so software fantastic. as a service is that, business. Is that yeah, little... for a growth company for an 18 billion dollar growth company, do I look fantastic company, then? You don't look fantastic, <laughs> but I don't. Th- you you don't look nearly as fantastic as Shopify does. I mean, I, this growth story continues. Um, their expectations for a little bit slower growth might have got some investors a little bit spooked, and that's why the stock's selling down for the first quarter. But this is a company that has always um, outdid its own expectations and did this quarter as well too. So when I think about the the long term opportunity to provide e-commerce solutions to more than 600,000 clients around the world, the Shopify platform continues to get richer and richer. Now, when you look at the stock that's done so well, and it sells at 16 times sales, compared to something like um, Salesforce, which sells at 10 times sales, and this company, Shopify, is reminding me a lot of more of like Salesforce. It has a young founder leader in Toby Lukey, who, by the way, said that Shopify was the fastest growing company to one billion sales of all SaaS companies of all time. So it reminds me a lot of Salesforce, and it's a little bit more expensive than Salesforce, but for the growth picture and for the opportunity, I still like Shopify long term. It's a long term holding of the Motley Fool. We've done very well with it, and the growth prospects continue to be really impressive, especially how they are continuing to innovate and provide these client solutions for these customers around the globe. Okay, so I was giving you a hard time, but when I do see the headlines here that they reported a fourth quarter loss, how do I square that with everything you just said? Do I look at that as Shopify is investing, and I'm going to give them kind of a wide berth, just like people gave Amazon over the years when they were losing money. Or is this a loss to be concerned? No, about? it's a, it's it's an accounting loss, and so they're still generating cash, free, or still generating cash flow, and they have a load of cash on the balance sheet, more than a billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. So yes, they are making a loss, but they're making these investments for the long term, and this is the way that a lot of these growth. Companies um, invest their uh, cash, invest their uh, the the money they make from their from their sales, and the operating profit on an adjusted basis was up a little bit uh, this quarter versus last quarter. Um, so, on uh, if you account for like some stock based compensation, they actually are making a little bit of money. But yes, they are investing a lot into the business. Yeah, I mean we see this with a lot of the businesses that we cover, right? I mean, and it, it, you can kind of tie this back to the initial conversation we were having about a lot of cash there on the sidelines. Uh, these are the types of growth companies that have these neat futures that we love to think about, but it is worth remembering. I mean, as you noted, they are not profitable yet, and profits do matter. We look at the fundamentals of the business, the cash they generate, and we can see that three, five years down the road. It's also worth remembering that Wall Street, for better or worse, is focused on an earnings per share number. Most of these companies are valued on earnings multiples, and when they're not, it requires a little bit more context, which Andy gave to us. Again, a company that owns a lot of the market it's pursuing. It's just got to really invest a lot up front to build out that profit. And I'll just say, they have a little bit of flexibility on the profit side to dial down or up their investments, just like we saw with Netflix over the years. So, right now, they continue to invest, and Toby continues to invest in, in back in the business and recede on the growth side. And you think about how big that market opportunity is. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about e-commerce, yeah. writ large. I mean, the entire world, basically. Yeah. I mean, that is a massive opportunity. So. I like looking at that market opportunity and kind of putting our investments into that context because it really gives you an idea of how far they potentially could go. Okay, well, Ellie may be going private. 
Jason, you gave me that line. You guaranteed me that that See, line would work, and I'm not, I'm not sure it did. Me laugh. I'm I mean, not sure it did. Come okay, on, listeners. So Ellie Mae is a mortgage software provider. <laughs> it's being acquired by private equity company Toma Bravo in an all-cash deal at 3.7 billion dollars. Jason, I know this is a company you follow. Shares of Ellie Mae up. Big today. What do you think? Yeah, it is. It's one I was chatting with uh, Simon Erickson back in uh, Texas here earlier. It's one that he and I covered uh, on MDP. Uh, one that we owned in MDP, owned for quite some time. It's not a shock to me to see this. Their Encompass lending platform is really strong. Uh, chances are, if you've bought a home or refinanced your home, some of, if not most of, those documents you've signed were generated from Ellie Mae's Encompass uh, engine. Uh, so they they had a very good business there, or have a very good business there in uh, growing relationships with lenders, switching costs grow over time. Pricing power comes from that. It's an attractive business. Uh, and to put that into context, I mean, this was one with MDP. It was a big winner. Um, I recommended it as a Best Buy now in MDP seven different times, uh, going all the way back to January two thousand and sixteen. Uh, it recorded absolute positive returns six of those seven times, market beating five of those seven times. I personally have owned shares and have done very well with those as well. So, I'm sad to see it go. It's worth noting there is a 35-day shop-around clause for LMA management. That means the board can go out there and at least look at other potential suitors if they feel like there's a better offer out there. So, you take that with a grain of salt. $99 in cash is a pretty good offer. For today, so right. a shareholder. What does a shareholder do here? Do they go ahead and sell, or do they get greedy and kind of wait? Far for... be it from me to advise the shareholder what to do, and I have the luxury of basically having to hang on to my shares anyway because we'll be talking about it for a while. And our trading guidelines here tell me that I need to hang on to those shares until I shut up about it. Um, I would not sit there and tell you that there will not be a competing offer. It's an attractive business. It generates a lot of cash. I could see a competing offer coming in. Um, I think that right now, the state of the housing market is just uncertain enough where LMA management might feel like this is a good offer. Particularly, listen, they've got earnings coming out on Thursday, so we we may not. They may drop a bombshell on Thursday uh, that that could make this offer look really nice. We just don't know. But I mean, I. I think you know, unless you have a better place for that money, I think hanging on to those shares is probably the most uh, level-headed way to go about things because it does sound like ninety-nine dollars in cash is going to be the worst-case scenario. So, okay, well, let's talk some Amazon. Amazon is buying the router maker Eero. Andy, this is just Amazon's latest push into the smart home market. Amazon last year buying the video doorbell maker Ring for around a billion dollars. Yeah, just the continued push into uh, having more influence into that space, and uh, obviously it's uh, it's a tiny drop in the whole Amazon story. But what's interesting to me is just the ability for Amazon to recognize through their own platform what is working, what is selling. What has the best reviews? How much data they are collecting on Arrow that was selling versus their competitors, and be able to make an attractive offer? Now we don't know what the the price was, and the last Arrow valuation I think was at around two hundred fifty million dollars, and they took on about a hundred million in financing over the years. So I'm sure they got a nice re- their investors got a nice return on this, but. Uh, a small, real move for Amazon, yet it does speak volumes to the direction that Amazon is going when they want to have more influence on the shopping habits and the online presence habits in our own homes. 
And Jason, we were slacking um, before the show today, and you posed a really interesting question. It's not a question I understand completely, so I want to put it back at you, but I, I want to pretend that I came up with it. Okay, So, are you good with that? <laughs> sure. Okay, so here's the question. At what point does Amazon start becoming Facebook? So well, what do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, I mean we've been talking <laughs> we've been talking a lot about Facebook and privacy, right? I mean that has been really the conversation du jour for about the past year it seems. Um, and it is becoming more and more obvious every single day that we basically can't get around um, in our day-to-day lives without dealing with Alphabet, Facebook, Amazon and or Apple in some capacity. Costco. Uh, and Costco, yeah. Costco. <laughs> Um, some of us more than others, I guess. But uh, I mean, when we look at what Amazon's doing and all of the things that they're putting out, the devices, uh, Echoes, tablets, Kindles, all of these things, it, now routers, uh, certainly looking to get into the smart home more and more, and, and really the bets that they're making on the smart home are, are starting to pay off. You just start to wonder how comfortable are you with Amazon essentially being that extra member of your family, so to speak. Even though you're not really giving them an allowance, uh, although maybe you are because you're buying stuff from Amazon online. But I mean it's just it's something to think about because we've talked a lot about Amazon we've we've been putting Amazon in this sort of positive light for so long. Let's let's flip the coin a little bit and look at the other side and think, okay, what does it take for people to really start becoming more and more apprehensive yeah. about allowing more Amazon in their lives? What's the line? And I feel like I'm Getting kind of close to it. I mean, I'm not sure. I was waiting for after we were slacking. You know, my line was going to be if if my echo in the house chimed in with her opinion unsolicited, then I was that was going to be my line right there, Mac. <laughs> but it's just worth it's yeah. worth posing because we've been talking about this stuff a lot with Facebook. Let's be fair and talk about the other companies that are in this same arena. Amazon's one of them, Alphabet is another. Well, I mentioned about the data that they are collecting on on all the shopping habits, but their advertising business is just starting to ramp up. We saw this last quarter as they continued to become a bigger and bigger player in advertising, so advertising on their platforms. And this is going to be a bigger push into the privacy concerns that have wrecked and hurt Facebook over the last couple years. So, Jason's right. Like the privacy issues now facing Facebook and in this example is another case that people may point to like, mm, wow, my privacy is really becoming more and more dominated into fewer and fewer players in technology. And uh, Jason named those earlier. So, along those lines, do you think people are just getting more and more comfortable with giving up their privacy? Or do you think people, on some very basic level, just don't realize how much of their privacy they've given up. Because those are two very different. I think scenarios. generally to realize it, I think most people are just lazy. And I mean, like I would put myself in that. Same. I think we're all as humans, we're creatures of habit. We've become technology has made us lazy, and and it's really tough to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah. So I mean, we're going to figure out ways to justify it for the sake of convenience or what we really want. And People will frame it, however, in their minds. Oh, I don't have anything to hide anyway. Ah, I mean, what are they going to get from me? Privacy. Privacy means something today than it did 20 years ago. No question about it. Um, but I mean, I, I think generally speaking, once you start really uh, ingraining 
human behavior, the way these companies have, it is extremely difficult to undo that. I actually think we're on the little bit of the top of the S curve here, where maybe a couple years ago we were like, yeah, privacy, great. We value convenience more than privacy. And yeah. I'm willing to, to sell a little bit to these players, these tech giants, to get much more convenience. I think now, after all the, the turmoil with Facebook, after GDPR over in Europe, we saw the fine hit <laughs> Alphabet in the past couple weeks. I think people are going to start pushing back a little bit more and more. I think we've already seen it clearly with Facebook, but I think we're going to start seeing it on the consumer side a little bit more. So I think Amazon will um, continue to be more and more relevant in our in in our lives over the next five ten years. But I do think consumers will start being a little bit more careful about what they're willing to give up. And I think it's figuring out how. At what point is is it like over convenient? And so I think a good example there would be something like those Amazon Dash buttons. Um, I mean, you yeah. know, those little buttons that you would buy, you'd put it like on your washing machine, and you just push a button to order more uh, laundry detergent or whatever. Right. I mean, do you really need that? I mean, is it that difficult to open your phone and just click buy? I mean, how late? That's that's an example. Now, I don't know that those Dash buttons have really gained a lot of traction, but I will say, having tried them in our house. We tried them, and I thought, golly, man, how lazy have I become where I can't just open my phone and order it? So, to Andy's point, I think there is that line there where convenience is almost like, all right, that's a little bit beyond convenience. I don't need it. There is a line, I think, that people will draw. It's just a matter of where it is. At least that's an active, whether it's opening your phone or pushing that button. I think on the passive side, that's where the concerns are going to start coming in. We're already seeing a little bit with AI, artificial intelligence. When they start providing solutions, when people are listening in constantly to conversations, and Jason made the joke about when you know if the tool, <laughs> the device is all of a sudden offering their input, I think that's where the concerns are going to start coming. And it really does come most I believe in the smart home where the concerns will be, and this is exactly where the direction that Amazon is going into with the Arrow acquisition. That's the part that scares me. It's yeah. not what we know; it's what we don't right. know, yeah. and that we find out later. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea that yeah. that dash button was like walking my dog. Well, right. today. We're finding yeah. I mean, out more know. and more and more as time goes on. And I mean, it's it may sound ridiculous on the surface, but who knows what kind of information that little dash button is gleaning, yeah. right? Yeah. And then look to a company like Control 4, where the, the entire business is founded on the smart home, right. and getting that hardware and operating system into your house. Well, how much are you going to trust any of that stuff now? So, at least with Amazon, they have a lot of different levers to pull. Something like Control 4, maybe not so much, but it's yeah. it's interesting to watch this all sort of evolve. Yeah. Okay, well, let's close with a story about a company um, named Chegg. Now, Jason, I didn't even know about this company. I never heard the name, and that's that's part of what makes life interesting. Discovery is the spice of life, yes, or it's sir. one of the spices, yeah. right? So, Chegg is an education technology company that offers online textbook rentals, homework help, online tutoring, scholarships, internship matching, and the like. Chegg shares up around 9% today on earnings. And this is not a small company. This is between four and five billion dollars. Yeah. Well, speaking of spice spices, I mean, let's talk a little bit about McCormick, Mac, because that's really a business. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. Uh, all right, no, Chegg. I mean, this is a company I've covered for a number of years, and I started following it back in 2014 yeah. because it was. It, it was interesting to me from a parent's perspective, having gone to college, I saw what they were doing in the basic business back then was selling college textbooks to students. And, and then they got into the business of renting college textbooks to, to students, physical books. But what really struck me, the damning chart for the case for this business 
was the absurd increase in college text uh, in the price of college textbooks through the years. You go back to the mid seventies, college textbook the prices in college textbooks were outpacing medical services, new home prices, Brutal. and even the CPI. Which, if you think about it, really that that's extremely backwards. I mean, when you're a student, you don't have a whole heck of a lot to put on the line, and we're trying to educate our. our Young population to be able to to go do more things. We can't put them behind the eight ball by by making it so they can't even afford their books. Uh, but what they did, and, and I, I really I give the the all of the applause here to CEO Dan Rosenwig, was was basically pivoting this business to a digital business. Instead of being physical books, let's start going beyond books. Let's develop a a network, a full-on offering of all sorts of different services, from digital books to tutoring services. Uh, You name it, their Chegg services business really has it. And so, now they're bringing on students beyond college students. We're talking about middle school and high school students, bringing them into that network. They educate people on how to pursue student loans, grants, things like that to get into college. to me, is just an example of a business that saw a lot of inefficiencies in a very important demographic in students, and decided to try to eliminate as much of those inefficiencies as possible to return a lot of value. Now, with all that said, my one real concern with this business, because they make most of their money through that Chegg Services, which is subscriptions, students aren't known for having a whole heck of a lot of money. So the pricing power on that subscription may be a little bit uh, questionable, and, and the stock is not cheap. It's it's not like it's a profitable business. It's trading like a hundred times cash flow. So you take that for what it's worth. But this was a six dollar stock five years ago, Mac. I mean, it's closing in on forty dollars now. And the hats off to Dan for for really turning this business around. Do you think five years from now they're still chugging along, or <laughs> sorry, that was too easy? Or do you think they get acquired by someone like Amazon? Because when I first read about this company, my my first big question is. What keeps Amazon from just going into that space and just gobbling it up? Well, Amazon tried to, if you remember, they, they've gotten a little bit into the student book side of things. Barnes & Noble always was a player in that. And I think therein lies the importance of Chegg di- diversifying their business beyond just books and really offering educational services, tutoring and whatnot. Um, I, I, abs- I really thought Amazon would be a natural acquirer for a business like this a time ago, because it was, it was a lot cheaper. Um, it, to me, Seemed like a a great way to get immediate access to an up and coming generation of Prime members who would be developing a relationship with Amazon at, at a younger age, and that that could still happen. I don't know, um, but it sure does seem like they are doing just fine on their own. Okay, so let's wrap up with the "you should not invest this way at home" question, the desert island question. You're on a des- desert island for the next five years, and you've got to invest in one of these vehicles. Okay, here you go, cash. Shopify, Under Armour, Chegg, or Amazon. We're going to leave Ellie Mae out because Ellie Mae is going private. We we assume. So, what do you think? Uh, I'm going Shopify, but I tell you what, Chegg is really interesting, Jason. Even though the stock has had a massive run, they've they made a nice pivot to in their business to the higher margin, higher growth opportunity. But I just I look at what Shopify is doing. Yes, growth rates are trending a little bit down, but the profitability curve is going to come, even um, opposed to Max um, nagging at them about not being profitable. <laughs> um, uh, the growth picture for that market and the solutions they are they are driving. Uh, I'm, so I'm going to go. Shopify. Yeah, for me, it comes down to Shopify and I think Under Armour in this case. So I, I will go Under Armour with the main point being that it is it is a profitable business with a powerful brand already. I think that they have uh, 
laid some good uh, roots in the ground for this for this business going forward. I think that they have something here with new with the new leadership and their CFO and COO on board with Kevin Plank. I think Plank is serious about building a company that can stand the test of time, and I think he's uh, a little bit humbled by the past couple of years. and um, And I think there's a lot of uh, the risk reward scenario. I think for Under Armour today still makes a lot of sense. Andy and Jason, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Mac. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.